the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is... Ian Simpkins. That's right. Your name is? Brian Fromm. Oh, you passed with flying colors, Brian. We are still the same two people here (laughs) every day. But are we, though? People are waited with bated breath. Is it? it? Yeah. Oh, that does sound like (laughs) Northern Matthew McConaughey. I knew it. Did I tell you the story on air yet, or have I not mentioned that? Which one? The free breakfast that I got. Because you uh, told me you need to share that story. (laughs) Yes, you do. I was out to breakfast with a friend, and the waitress walked up, and I started to order. She goes, wait, 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 wait. Say that again. And I said it again. She goes, you sound just like Matthew McConaughey. Hold on. So she ran and got her manager, (laughs) (laughs) brought her over, and she pointed at me and she says, okay, say all right, all right, all right. And I went, all right, all right, all right. And the manager says, that's Matthew McConaughey. Breakfast is on me. (laughs) I was like, wow. All right, I'll, t- I'll, I'll take that. tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even the slight bit, the slightest bit uh, southern, but I'll, I'll take a few breakfast. I'll take it. Shoot. That's right. That's right. Oh, all that's right. really funny. You can find us all over the interwebs on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash the common good, at Common Good Talk on Twitter, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And uh, an article that we found out of Christianity Today, we thought we'd start today with the feel good. It yeah. feels like the week so far has been kind of buried under an avalanche of either controversy or sadness mm-hmm. or sorrow. So we figured let's just let's just start with some positivity. Why not? Why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on here? Yeah, I love just the title of this article that we get at Christian Day. It says, How Baptists and Catholics Together Help Save Thousands of Florida Marriages. I love okay. it already. This sounds interesting. Um, in two, the background of the story is this. In 2017, It says something unprecedented took place in Jacksonville. The Jacksonville Baptist Association and the local Catholic diocese joined forces to co-sponsor a large marriage education and enrichment program for the Duval County area. What inspired local Catholics and evangelicals to come together was a privately funded community campaign to strengthen marriage. So over a three-year period, an organization called the Culture of Freedom Initiative worked with at least 50 Protestant and Catholic churches and over 40 local nonprofits to reach roughly 50,000 adults in Jacksonville. Just think about that. Three-year period, 50 Protestant and Catholic churches, usually Protestant and Catholic churches tend to not interact, uh, not work together very well, plus nonprofits, uh, all working together under the same uh, hope to strengthen marriages. Uh, It says Tommy and Sandra Davis are one of the Jacksonville couples whose floundering marriage was saved. Tommy says he was 99% out of his marriage when a counselor with Live the Life, uh, its main nonprofit partner, convinced him and his wife to attend an intensive marriage event called Hope Weekend. He said that Hope Weekend didn't just save our marriage, it changed our lives. Mm. And so this weekend was put on called Hope Weekend uh, with the hope 
uh, to change this kind of uh, to, to save marriages. So what's the result? What ended up happening? It says, according to a new report conducted by the Institute for Family Studies and sponsored by the Philanthropy Roundtable, the marriage campaign may have had a similar uh, impact on the marriage of thousands of Jacksonville residents. Here it is. From 2016 to 2018, as the campaign was underway, the divorce rate in Duval County fell by more than 20 percent. Wow. A significantly bigger divorce decline than one witnessed across the United States as a whole. Uh, did the Culture of Freedoms Initiative's marriage campaign help drive down Jacksonville's divorce rates? To answer that question, they conducted a series of statistical tests, and they basically found out the, uh, that it did, that it had an effect. And uh, I, there's so much about this story um, that is encouraging. Uh, it says they they can't conclude that it caused the divorce decline in Jacksonville. Uh, they just said that they were struck by the fact that the increase in family stability in Jacksonville during the years of the Culture of Freedom Initiative was larger than the increase in family stability witnessed in the vast majority of other large comparable counties across the United States. And there's so much I like about this, but the biggest one is churches, uh, denominational differences, Catholic and Protestant, um, different types of Protestant churches, nonprofits that are probably in some ways – uh, you don't like to think of nonprofits as competing, but in some ways, you know, they're competing for people and dollars. Right. Uh, all working together for the good of of marriages in a very specific area where they lived, and then seeing the fruit of that over time. I just think this is such an encouraging story. Well, and you you maybe have heard the the spot throughout the day, but like that that was my introduction to Thrivent was two other churches and our church in the Bartlett area saying, okay. Our churches are pretty different. Mm-hmm. This wasn't a Catholic Protestant thing, but it was certainly three very different kinds of churches. And we said, all right, we don't maybe agree on every point of doctrine or even stylistic approaches to church. Mm. We all care about the marriages in our church. And so like Thrivent came along with us and made it possible, honestly, for us to be able to throw this marriage conference. And it was cool because it was the three of us sort of owned different pieces of it. Okay, But as a result, couples from their churches and my church all came together for like a two-day conference exactly for the same purpose. Like, all right, let's just invest more Mm. in the marriages in our church. And plenty of them, you know, walked away, I'm sure, with connections to other churches. And they also saw, you know, different churches in their city come together for a greater cause, which I think sends a really, really powerful signal, especially maybe to unchurched people in the community who have this understanding, understandably, (laughs) that churches are always kind of at each other's throats or they're very territorial, like you keep your people over there, we'll keep our people over here. Uh, One of the things that we experienced from that was like this really beautiful sense of like, oh, you actually care about like the kingdom, the big cake and the big Mm. seed church, even though it wasn't like anyone like left churches because of it. Right. But it certainly was like this coming together. And I think, you know, this story even more so when we see people reach across the Catholic Protestant divide, it's why I love the work that my friend John Armstrong has been doing for years to to build ecumenic, you know, he calls it um, missional ecumenism. How do we actually mm-hmm. intentionally build these bridges for the mission of the kingdom of God? And I think that there is obvious hurdles, you know, you're going to reach theological roadblocks, yeah. but like what pastor, what church, what denomination doesn't want better, healthier marriages in their community? Everybody, mm-hmm. everybody wants that, yeah. you know, like one of the quotes in the article is, we just wanted to normalize investing in your marriage, which was kind of heartbreaking to read. Like, yeah, you know, why isn't that normal? Mm. Why is that? Why does that even? Why are we even talking about this now? Why is it like newsworthy to say, you know what? 
Let's invest in marriages. Yeah. It's not yeah. like that revolutionary of a thought, but it's something that's like pretty rare and I think is really needed, to be honest. When you and these other churches did what, uh, this conference you guys put on, yeah. uh, did you guys even have to talk at all about like, hey, we're all equal shares in this, we're all in this together? Was there any like groundwork that needed to be laid because it was different for churches to reach, or were these buddies of yours that you're like, let's do this together? Maybe yeah, they were. Up. They were friends of mine. So, like when Thriving came alongside, they made it possible for us to like rent the space needed. So okay. it was more. It was more people than any of us could host. Um, they helped with some of the like the print material and the food and that kind of stuff. So we definitely wanted to give them a nod. Yep. Like, hey, this is why we're able to do this, and we own different pieces of it. So each of us was upfront at some point in the conference. Um, and we talked a little bit about, you know, at our church, we fill in the blank or we really love it. Our church, blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't like, it wasn't a sales pitch Come from, mind. from public yeah, yeah. church or the mission church or the village church of Bartlett. It yeah, was like, yeah. Hey, we just care about marriages and we think God does too. And you know, we all know, and we, you know, we had them grouped by church, but they certainly, there was time in between. Yeah. We're like, Oh, I know so-and-so. Oh, I didn't know you went to this church. Like yeah. even that anecdotally was really, was really cool. Cause I think one of the, I think there's two issues here. I think one as churches, we just become very siloed, right? Like, yeah, exactly. We're not like I exactly. don't want to connect with other people. you right. just have a lot going on like right. I, to keep your church functioning. Uh, but two, uh, you know, one of the dirty little secrets out there is pastors and churches as a whole can get really competitive. And that sounds really weird to say, like, what are you competitive for? But but churches get this weird sort of like, you know, uh, I'm I'm competing with your church and I'm competing and that's terribly unhealthy. But that's you might be thinking, why, yeah, why don't we do more stuff like that? That's one of the reasons. Yeah, is because there's this weird competitiveness among churches that just when you actually sit back and think about it, you're like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. And so these churches on a large scale were able to get past that hurdle yeah. and be like, nope. We're going to do this. And anytime I see that, honestly, that's something that's so close to my heart before I even knew what the word ecumenism was. And mm-hmm. I think the more that we can see that, just the better that we're going to be. All right. Well, coming up next, a uh, new Star Wars trailer dropped and it debuted on Carrie Fisher's birthday. We're going to talk a little Star Wars coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Okay, so both Trekkies and Star Wars fans are furious right now. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> we, we mentioned we're going to talk Star Wars, and then producer John chose the music not from Star Wars, but from Star Trek, which, yeah. again, is that a beef that makes sense to you? To me, I know the difference, but yeah, I, I, know I, you know the I difference. do not feel the emotion that some people out there are feeling right now. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Well, I guess, though, if it's like you, if you've committed yourself, like I'm trying to think what would be an analogy that would equate anger for you? If someone's like, hey. Oh, it's, be, it's baseball and football. It's sports teams. But if it was like, ah, Giants, Cowboys, pretty much the same team. Exactly. You'd be infuriated. I'd punch them in the face. You, I, your face is turning <laughs> red right now. Or like, oh, why do you really care? Like, what? No, why do I really care? It is funny because I like Star Wars. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get myself in trouble with people. I did this yesterday about what I've never seen. You said we do a whole segment. Yeah, never seen a Star Trek movie. What? Nope, never. Oh gosh, not one. All right, I've seen most of the Star Wars movies. We need to have a talk. I do need to say, John did this on purpose, by the he way. Did. So he knows he the difference knows. between the, all right, just so yeah. that everyone's Save clear. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't just type like star into Google and was like, well, whatever music comes up first. <laughs> Let's do this one. Yeah, track wars. What could be, what could be the difference? <laughs> oh, that's funny. All right. So this was your selection. You chose uh, this story in particular, having now admitted that you 
have seen Star Wars. Star Wars, yeah. But you're not necessarily like a massive fan. No, no. And I'm not even sure I've seen all of them. Now, if I, I, I don't know that I have. But oh, boy. I love Star Wars. Star Wars is great. Um, and, and I did think I, the trailer came out last night and, and everything kind of blew up. People going like the or two days ago, people just going, this is unbelievable. This is, uh, you know, people are just waiting for this. You know what? When this comes out, this is going to be huge lines of people, everybody talking about it. And you you uh, said before the break, I didn't realize it came out on Carrie Fisher's birthday. Carrie Fisher, uh, famously Princess Leia, who is in this movie, mm-hmm. even though she passed away, I believe, all the way back in 2016, maybe. Um, and so there's some cool symmetry there. Um but but it to me a movie like Star Wars or like a an institution like Star Wars, um, besides it being just really good uh, movie making, besides it being just cinematically uh, crazy, I, I I remember when I was younger, one of the first movies I remember as a kid was Return of the Jedi. Uh, but if you talk to people when the first Star Wars came out or Empire Strikes Back, it was revolutionary, the things that they were doing in those movies. Like, now you go back and you watch them, and it seems kind of like, oh, you know, it's kind of <laughs> hokey. But um, How dare you, sir? <laughs> but, uh, but back then, it was crazy uh, what they were doing. And so uh, it does raise the question. Uh, what is so why do people like so deeply love Star Wars? What is it about that franchise uh, that because there's a lot of good movies out there. There's yeah. a lot of well-made movies when it comes particularly to something like Star Wars. Like, are you a huge fan? And whether you are or not, why do you think that like there's an obsession with it, that there's a uh, almost a yeah, like like people just crave more and love it. I think uh, you remember when Donald Miller was really starting to roll out some of his story brand stuff. I do before it became kind of what it is now, where it's really specifically for you know like executives and CEOs and entrepreneurs. But the the whole kind of premise, I remember going to a conference and him talking about Star Wars specifically uh-huh. and the arc of the narrative and saying this is pretty much the arc of every great story we've ever told ever. Mm. And he plots it out in a way that's really interesting without, you know, and he kind of admitted, I think to being a pretty big star Wars fan. So it wasn't like he wasn't fanboying over star Wars specifically, but like why narrative like this, why the struggle between good and evil, why the underdog, why discovery, why conflict, why these things so move us. And, you know, conversely, why certain things like movies on the Hallmark Channel don't tend to move us in the same way. They're fine to like. Interesting. But for him, and he was talking particularly to pastors and leaders, he was sort of saying, we've lost so much of this arc in our sermon writing, in the way that we even organize our websites or organize our teams. He said, sermons have become so utilitarian where it's just like, here's a bunch of information. Here are the application steps, yeah. which may be very right but he's like, they don't move us at all. So he was kind of talking about the art of moving people and communicating and use Star Wars sort of as the bedrock of his of his case, which I thought was really interesting because like, OK, this won't be popular. But if you go back and watch some of those early Star Wars movies, um, Mar- like Mark Hamill is not a great actor. How right? dare you? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's a phenomenal voice actor. Yeah, I got you. But if you gotcha. objectively look through the lens of some of those first movies, you're yes. like, this isn't. 
acted superbly by yeah. everybody. Now, I think Carrie Fisher was mm-hmm. phenomenal. Yeah. I think Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford was yeah. fantastic. But even Harrison Ford wasn't originally an actor at all. He was a carpenter. You know, he was like building That's sets true. and stuff. Yeah. I didn't know that his, at all. We'll do that Harrison all the time. Ford? His introduction into being an actor is a, that could be a movie in and of itself. That was like never. That's fascinating. Yeah, I didn't know that. It was really, really interesting. So anyway, I, I, I gave all those points to say, I think that there is something inescapable in all of us that longs for these like, not only deeper narratives, but like watching the underdog step into their full identity and to see conflict and good over evil. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I think, you know, particularly in our line of work as people who give sermons, I think that's something that I always want to like, how do we reintroduce some of those elements into how we communicate? What does that look like for you? I'm fa- I'm fascinated by what Donald Miller said or what you took away. Like what does even the concept of rediscovering that kind of story arc that moves. Well, it was people out there probably going, what does that look like even in a sermon? What it, is that? What it was that a like? long time ago that I, in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> uh, no. Well played. So I don't know that I remember any of the specifics, but I do yeah. know one of the things, a community that we do, I think pretty well, especially when we're brainstorming a sermon is we're always asking, where's the tension? Mm. And I've, and I, I haven't, seen a lot of churches really grapple with that. So, you know, when we come to a research uh, or when we have a brainstorming meeting, there's multiple people in the room and we're like throwing stuff on a whiteboard and we're talking about what about this as an intro and what if these are the, what if we use this text here? And there's always somebody that's going to ask, where's the tension though? What's what's the why piece? Mm. That's a very central part to how we write sermons. And you could have a bunch of good information on the whiteboard, but if there's no like lean forward moment, that's kind of how we'll describe it sometimes. Uh, we won't leave until we figure that out. And and I, I I appreciate that dedication to that process because, you know, we all have people in our churches that are like, they're there, arms crossed, they're dragged there by their spouse or yep. by their parents. And if we're not, at least in some way, trying to reach to the, oh, what's the gut thing that motivates yeah. people? Um, ultimately, obviously, trusting that the Holy Spirit is Absolutely. the one that moves and convicts them. Um, I mean, that is, that is paramount. But... Um, it's not quite what you're asking, but it certainly is something that we try to keep in the forefront Absolutely. that if, if from start to finish, there is no tension, there is no why, there is no like, how does this actually move or motivate or reach someone that's not interested in any of this, um, which is what I think is a, a part of what makes good storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be interesting when this movie comes out. Now, is this movie, so this is where I'm going to give my Star Wars uh, naiveness here. Is this the last in the story or is this one other one that's kind of in the middle of the story, do you know? No, I think this is the last of the the main timeline. Okay. But okay. there are like like Solo was like a bit of a offshoot, off, and yeah. There, yeah. So there's so this is going to wrap up the story. I, I think. think so. Okay. People mad right now. There's people just banging I on know. their steering wheel, going, <laughs> "You don't know." We, we should get like a real expert in the studio to talk about this sometime yes, because I have, yes. I have no clue. It'll be fascinating when this movie comes out. I will certainly see it and I think you're right. Do you see it in theaters? I'll see it in a theater. Okay, cool. If I, you know, yeah. depending on where we're at in life, but <laughs> uh, I think that this will, uh, I think you're right. I think it's the tension of good versus evil, uh, light versus dark and just great storytelling and how, I think also there's investment in it, right? We've been invested in Star Wars for decades now so it's like, of course, I'm going to invest in this. But, man, it was pretty crazy when that trailer came out, how many people were just kind of head over heels. Like, I cannot wait for this. Well, and I kind of tend to be in that same camp when those new trailers. I honestly, I am like, I don't know that we talked about this here. I'm a closeted lover of trailers. I think trailers are their really? own. I really am. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I think they're like, 
these two minute mini <laughs> movies. And I think the art of editing trailers is completely unique two trailers i think it tells a story and i don't know i really that's awesome i really really love trailers we'll talk about that another time all right coming up next a headline i cannot believe uh updated mitt romney's secret twitter account discovered named pierre delecto <laughs> we're gonna unpack this bizarre story and all sorts of other things coming up next on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. And in stories I never thought we'd do, I don't know why I never thought we'd do this. What does that say about my understanding of what the show actually is? Because it feels like <laughs> once a week I say something like that. Like, yep. well, can't believe we're talking about it. Here's part of the headline. <laughs> Mitt Romney's secret Twitter account discovered named Pierre Delecto slammed Marco Rubio, Newt, Rudy Giuliani, and liked Bill Crystal impeachment quote. That's a whole story in and of itself right there. So I put this, I said, well, you got to talk about this because the other day, you know, when you just start reading an article uh, and, and then all of a sudden, like 30 minutes later, you're like, I'm still reading this article. Like, it's too fascinating. <laughs> this so is one of those articles. This was it. <laughs> if you could go back, people, and, and Google it about Mitt Romney's secret Twitter account that was discovered this week. Uh, again, he's named Pierre Delecto is what he named himself. And uh, it's on our Facebook page. Don't Google it. Go to our Facebook page. Basically, but I mean the longer article. Basically, somebody um, did just a deep dive, a reporter, and the amount of investigating they did to try to connect the dots was absolutely fascinating. Like they got into this Pierre Delecto account and they were going. They were analyzing who was the first person they liked. What are the things they did? They certain <laughs> it was amazing. And eventually they did all of this research and then they finally got Romney and Romney just kind of with a smile just admitted to it. He said, "Say moi." <laughs> <laughs> Which I believe is it is me. Yeah. It is I, right? That is weird. And so it does basically if you look at this account which I believe has now been disabled um or at least privatized, he uh it's very telling because Mitt Romney said stuff in it to defend Mitt Romney mm-hmm. to people. Mm-hmm. So he wouldn't he wouldn't comment on stories from Mitt Romney. He would comment from Pierre Delecto, <laughs> uh, but in defense of Mitt Romney, and uh, which is interesting. And then you start to do a little analysis of the things he liked and the things he retweeted versus the things he's actually said. It's fascinating. But before you come down on Mitt Romney, no, like he is far from the only person who yeah. has been proven to use a pseudonym or a burner account. Other politicians, um, famously Donald Trump, when he was uh, not a politician back in the 80s, when he was in New York, he famously would call radio stations or do interviews as John Barron, right, uh, right. which has been proven to actually be him. But uh-huh. he would call and like support <laughs> Donald Trump's adventures like it was this whole thing. Uh, Anthony Weiner, the uh, what was he, the mayor of New York City or the governor of New York? He was famously Carlos Danger. He was had his own. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. It is. But then it's not just politicians like there's uh, some sports stories going around right now. Kevin Durant. Uh-huh. World famous basketball player, one of the best basketball players in the world, uh, admitted last year to having burner accounts where he would go and argue with people about <laughs> basketball and about him, and he would make comments not from himself. And so it does raise just a couple, besides it being hilarious, the names they choose, whether it be Pierre Delecto, John Barron, or Carlos Danger, uh, it does raise this question uh, why? Why doesn't Mitt Romney just make comments from Mitt Romney's authorized account? Right. Uh, why doesn't Kevin Durant just go on from or whoever else? 
these are just the guys that it's been discovered. Right. It appears to be a thing. What is driving them uh, that they would say, you know what? I want to be able to have this dialogue, but I need to ha- I, I need to be hidden. What's behind that? Yeah, I think there's two things that I find interesting here. One, uh, our inescapable need to get stuff off our chest. You know, like mm. in each of these stories, it's um, it's people saying what's really on their mind. It's people being really um, frank, really blunt. And I think that to me is interesting. It's why in a lot of ways, you know, and we've talked about this a number of times. I'm an advocate for. Uh, getting a therapist or a counselor, if that's something that you feel like would be beneficial. I think the church has done a really poor job of giving permission in that regard. There is just a lot of health, I think, and just being able to get stuff off your chest. I have a friend who's uh, uh, he's a photographer in Chicago, and um, you know, I've heard a number of people say that they have accounts where they just it's it's their place to vent interesting without without any consequence the other thing that i find interesting though i think a lot of this has to do with image right i think there is yeah. something to be said about uh, a politician or a well-known athlete that says i could never actually say those things and keep my sponsorships or oh, i could never say these things without upsetting my teammates or my coach or so there is a little bit and again as an enneagram 3 uh, i get this this like curation of an image that, oh, if I started saying things that negative or if I took that position or like that wouldn't be well received. So you just sort of stuff it down low. And so yeah. I think those two things link together. And again, there's probably other motivations. Yep. I think like I forget how much people like trolling. I don't really understand it. I don't either. But like, that, doesn't, that doesn't bring me any joy mm-hmm. at all. But some people, you know, and I'm sure I'm sure you've seen this in some of the stories we've covered where you scroll through the comments. You're like, are people just hovering over this person's account to <laughs> waiting to like mess with them all the time. Yeah. And sometimes it's hilarious. I'm not saying it's not funny, but I think those first two motivations, the need to get stuff off your chest, which I think is a universal human need, and at least to some degree the need to portray a version of yourself that you want everyone else to see are probably in my mind the two biggest motivations for these fake and burner accounts. Yeah. I have no idea why or how these names are chosen. It makes me think of uh, uh, Ron Swanson's alter ego in Parks and Recreation. You never watch Parks and Recreation? I don't know the pseudonym, but I do like Parks and Recreation. Yeah. So, so Ron Swanson was this, is this like really like gruff, bacon-loving yep. uh, government worker, and he had it's discovered like in season two or three that he's got an alter ego named Duke Silver, who's a jazz saxophone player. <laughs> and they, they discovered him in a nightclub, like with a fedora playing saxophone. And it's like completely opposite of, you know, who they know him to be at the office. Yeah. And I think there's something, you know, in the human condition that is uh, is drawn to that, I think. I, yeah. can, I can totally be myself. And it's surprising to me that the need is so deep and so strong that someone would risk being caught yeah. by creating a fake account just in order to be able to speak their mind. It's a, it's very interesting. Now, you, we do – there's a story that we didn't talk about last week that that shows the power of Twitter. Daryl Morey – I don't know if you followed this – the GM of the Houston yeah. Rockets. Yeah. He tweeted something in support of Hong Kong against China. Right. And China is an unbelievable uh, partaker of NBA basketball. Uh, and they think that it might cost the NBA $5 billion, that one tweet. And so they're trying to damage control. So there is something to be said. When That's what I thought of when you said, hey, they do have to protect their brand a little bit and protect their name. Uh, but there is something here about just this desire to be heard. Because I would think, whether it be Mitt Romney or Kevin Durant or whoever else, 
Like Twitter would feel beneath them. Like, you know, getting into the Twitter huh. wars, like what what good is there? But there is this idea of probably trying to control the narrative a little bit of like, no, you know what? They wrote this article about me and I want them to know what I really think or or I want them to see that not everyone thinks that way. But I can't say it from my own account. It's just right. itching. You go through Pierre Delecto's, <laughs> what he chose to respond and, and the ways he responded about Mitt Romney. It also is a real window uh, into Mitt Romney that we don't get anywhere else. Yeah, and I, there's there's an honesty there right. that we're not getting well, from that's, Mitt Romney. And that's my point. Like I think it, it is easy for us on this side of the coin to say that's beneath him. But then we forget that it's like, oh, he's human just like the rest yes. of us. And this need to... Speak your mind. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think it's it's why it's why we have this innate suspicion of someone who seems too polished mm. or too put together. You're like, wait a minute, he can't be that happy all the time. Like, <laughs> and I'm not even an angry person, but he seems yep. he seems cartoonish. I think that there is a mechanism in our brain somewhere that says it's honestly why I like student ministry so much. Mm. I think students have the best BS meter out of almost anyone in the church. They're like. You're saying good things. You don't seem real. Yeah. You don't you don't seem genuine. And I think that that's I don't know. I think that's something worth paying attention to, but I also think it's interesting that people that by our metrics have so much power, so much influence, so much wealth. Why would you like you said, yeah. this seems beneath you. Why waste your time with this? It is I think very humbling that oh, there's a mechanism in all of us that needs to speak our mind, but also feels very protective about the image we portray or the version of ourselves that people see, which it makes, makes me wonder how many pastors have burner accounts. Oh, my goodness. I didn't think about that. Perfectly. <laughs> what you just described. I bet you there's a lot of pastoral burner accounts out there that we would be surprised by. Let the investigation begin. <laughs> All right. Well, coming up next, uh, here's why you don't see your friends anymore. We're going to talk about that and other uplifting topics next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good on Twitter, at Common Good Talk. Uh, plus, if you're a podcasting type, which I'm not quite sure what constitutes a podcasting. We if you had to know create, when we know. But what would you, if you had to like create a character and someone like, oh yeah, that's the quintessential podcaster, what would they... Would they be wearing a fedora right now? No, see, I have to be careful because I love to podcast. That's how I listen to most of my stuff. So, what's the being careful that you have to? Well, I don't want to make. I don't want to mock them. <laughs> Why would you even go to mocking, Brian? It's usually a good first step. Yeah, don't mock. That's just a good rule of thumb. Everyone I know who podcasts a lot tends to be uh, tends to talk about how they don't have much time in their life, so they have to you know listen to things quickly or keep moving. So, wow, I did not anticipate this taking yep. a negative it's turn. Not at negative all. at all. Just not <laughs> I don't want to mock them. The, the mocking, maybe that was unfair. <laughs> so the, we love you out there, our podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. Reeling it back, nice. Uh, all right, so I mentioned this uh, this article. This title actually sort of fits what you were just saying. So there you go. It's out of the Atlantic. It says, uh, "Why you never see your friends anymore?" What's going on here? Yeah, it's out of the Atlantic, as you said, and it's an interesting premise. It starts by talking about the Soviet Union, which is not what you expect to read right away from under a cent- just under a century ago. And I never knew this, that in 1929, uh, in place of the weekend, uh, Joseph Stalin, uh, I'm going to try to get a Russian word here, he staggered a schedule known as uh, Neprarivka, which call, was the continuous work week. And so basically, 
Uh, and then it says that socially, this was a disaster. People had no times to see friends. Instead, they associated by color because basically you might have off Monday and Tuesday. I might have off Thursday and Friday. Uh, and so, you know, everyone who had off Monday and Tuesday, they were the purple people and everyone. They did it by color. Right. And so uh, it was basically husbands and wives were assigned to the same color, but managers rarely did this. And so basically they said even in Russia, it w- in the Soviet Union, it was a disaster. Workers were upset. They openly complained. The staggered work week didn't last long. And you can kind of see the obvious connection that this author is making is that now in our culture, what used to be kind of accepted maybe generations ago, right? You work nine to five Monday through Friday. Right. Uh, some jobs didn't work that way. But for the most part, yeah. you work nine to five Monday through Friday. You had your weekends. Everybody had the same weekend. Everybody had the same time off. And the author's premise is that that then um, – that then made it really easy and natural to build friendships because you're all working at the same time and you're off at the same time. Uh, his premise here is that we've kind of bought into this continuous work week again, that you're never really off. You're working weekends. You're working weird times. Right. Uh, and therefore, it's one of the byproducts is we don't see each other anymore because we're not on the same schedule. Uh, husbands and wives aren't on the same schedule. But more than that. Uh, but beyond that, uh, friends aren't on the same schedule. And so it adds this huge hurdle to friendship. And this then plays into a culture where we don't see each other very much uh, and builds into the loneliness we talk about. I think this is a pretty fascinating article because you're like, oh, yeah, in some ways we're structured not to be social. <laughs> yeah, in some right. ways, our, our culture is increasingly structured not to be social. And, and that's that's uh, difficult. So let me let me just read a little bit more from this article because there's some some interesting references to books I've never heard of. It says on the lower end of the labor market, standing ready to serve has become virtually a prerequisite for employment. A 2018 review of the retail sector called the Stable Scheduling Study found that 80% of American workers paid by the hour have fluctuating schedules. Hmm. Many employers now schedule hours using algorithms to calculate exactly how many sets of hands are required at any given time of day, a process known as on-demand scheduling. The algorithms are designed to keep labor costs down, but they also rob workers of set schedules. Hmm. The inability to plan even a week into the future exacts a heavy toll. For her recent book, On the Clock, uh, the journalist Emily Gundelsberger took jobs at uh, an Amazon warehouse, a call center, and a McDonald's. All three companies demanded schedule flexibility on their terms. Mm. The most explicit about the arrangement was Amazon. While filing out, f- filling out an online application, Gundelsberg found the following advisory. Working nights, weekends, and holidays may be required. Overtime is often required, sometimes on very short notice. Work schedules are subject to change without notice. Mm. And there's a, a number of references to There's another book that I uh, never heard of for her 2012 book, Sleeping With Your Smartphone. The Harvard Business School professor Leslie Perlow conducted a survey of 1,600 managers and professionals. 92% reported putting in 50 or more hours of work a week, and a third of those logged 65 hours or more. And she adds, that doesn't include the 20 to 25 hours per week. Most of them report monitoring their work while not actually working. In another book, 2016, Finding Time, the Economics of Work-Life Conflict, the economist Heather uh, Boucher describes the predicament in the stark terms. Professionals devote most of their waking hours to their careers, mm-hmm. which, again, as a pastor, two things. One, most of this doesn't surprise me. Nope. Two, we also fit in the category of some pretty odd 
work hour weeks. I mean, and again, a lot of that more is just the Sunday thing. I think as I've gotten older, I don't know if you would agree with this or not, I've gotten better at sort of blocking out very specific family and leisure time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that I think that the infrastructure that's leading to a culture not only of burnout, but one that's struggling to make meaningful relational connections on top of some of how we're seeing social media and technology mm-hmm. shape us just feels like a cocktail for disaster. It does. I think you are, you just read it, but in that book, Sleeping With Your Smartphone, uh, one of the unbelievably telling lines there is, right? People are working 50, 60 hours a week and ads that doesn't include the 20 to 25 hours per week. Most of them reported monitoring their work while not actually working. Like this concept of monitoring your work while you're not working, like that is a bit of a new concept because now we have phones, we've got computers at home. It is this inability to disconnect. And I'm not saying it was probably, I'm sure this still happened back in the 50s and the 60s. Who knows? But my sense is from talking to people from that generation, it was much more easy to leave your work at the office. Like because, so you know, there you didn't have the ability to, you literally were leaving your work at the office. Now, none of us are able to do that, um, except for very specific jobs that require it. And so this I do think you this small throw in line here, this layer of um, monitoring your work, even when you're not working. Yeah, I think that that exacts such a toll on families. Like, think about how many times, you know, in, in our families where I don't know if it happens in your family, but on occasion, my wife will be like, hey, you're really distracted. Well, I'm yeah. home. Right. And I'm not at work, but I'm still thinking about work. And you're, that's that monitoring work without working, like checking your phone all the time and this. And well, so it's not even just a phone. I, you know, people are wearing watches now. I mean, how many times have you had coffee with somebody where it's even just for a split second, they're like, they're, they're waving the application, the notification on their watch, but it still is them looking down at their watch every 40 seconds. That throws me so much yeah. because I don't have one of those watches. So right. it's not, I still bothers me. And I know I do it when someone looks at their phone while you're talking to them. And right. I'm guilty as charged. I know I do right. that. But I'm not used to the watch one yet. So you ask how many times that happened. It literally happened to me yesterday. Oh, I was did like, it? What just, what, like, why is that guy looking at his watch and staring at like, it? Am I that boring? Right. I was like, what just happened? Yeah, there's so, there's only an increasing numbers of ways. And the irony is, I think that we think, uh, or at least I feel sometimes like having my ability to be mobile with my phone or like you said with a watch or a laptop or whatever else makes you feel like you're less tied to work but you're actually more tied to work because you can't yeah. disconnect uh i literally uh i had my phone in my room last night it's funny we read this uh this morning uh, i got woken up by a by a text going off at like 5 30 in the morning and mm. i was like why is that per-? like i don't even know why that person's texting me at 5 30 in the morning and uh yeah, it is. This is a big deal, I think, and and it, it because there's physical ramifications of it. How often are we actually disconnecting from work and having actual leisure? Right. Sometimes it feels like we have to get away to do that. But how do we do that when we're just at home? When we're just with our family? When we're on a walk? Can we actually disconnect? I think this is going to be an increasing issue uh, uh, that is already an issue within our culture. I, I just find it so interesting, too, how much of this article is laced with, like, Sabbath language without actually saying it. Good point. Like, talking about non-productivity, talking about days where you, you, you there's just repose, there's just rest, there's just uh, a, a non-commitment to anything that day. Like, I miss... The days, I remember even as a kid, neighbors just unannounced showing up. Yes. And yeah. we had time to share a meal or have coffee or go to the backyard or like, I don't, that doesn't seem to be happening nearly as much. And you talk about, you know, how much of the working class gets next to zero notice with changing schedules. Like all of that 
I, I think I've often kind of banged the drum thinking it was something that we were doing, which it in part is, but it feels like the cultures and rhythms of society yes. are also partly contributing to that. I'll just sort of end with this because I think this last paragraph is is pretty good. It says, it's a, cl- it's a cliche among political philosophers that if you want to create the conditions for tyranny, you sever the bonds of intimate relationships in local community. Mm. Total- totalitarian movements are mass organizations of atomized, isolated individuals. Hannah Arendt famously wrote in The Origins of Totalitarianism. She focused on the role of terror in breaking down social and family ties in Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union under Stalin. But we don't need a secret police turn us into atomized, isolated souls. All it takes is for us to stand by with unbridled capitalism, rips us apart, uh, rips apart the temporal preserves that used to let us cultivate the seeds of civil society and nurture the sadly fragile shoots of affection, mm. infinity, and solidarity. I find that incredibly convicting. Well, you've been listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us via Google. That's on. Just type it into Google. You have to do all the work. (laughs) Really, how much work is that? Just Ian and Brian, the common good. Do you find that people still call it the common ground, by the way? Is that a thing that you encounter? No, no one's ever said that to me ever since I did it. Ever? I don't think so. I mean, I did it day one, first segment, segment one, hour one of our very first show. Yeah, but to be fair... The very first segment, I went, it's good, it's great, it's good, I'm happy to be here. So, I do remember the look you gave me, and I think Marcus was in there, or our program director, everyone's looking at me like, we probably want to get the name of the show correct. <laughs> yeah, we were, pretty, we were pretty nervous. We're lying down now. It's, yeah. we, it's, it's a completely, completely different vibe than January. The, ner- the nerves have gone away. <laughs> probably too much, to yeah. be honest. Just sipping a Mai Tai. Um, all right, so <laughs> uh, this is an article. Every time I choose these articles, you're always like, this is totally you, man. You're, you're the, the brain guy. You yeah. literally just said you're the neuromyth guy, which, which doesn't make sense. I'm not going to lie. It feels pretty cool, though. I feel, yeah. I feel all right about that. All right, so here's the headline. Students learn better best in their preferred learning style and other neuromyth. Mm. So as communicators, we're both teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always really interested in how people learn and how people change. Those are two of the biggest questions that motivate How people me. learn and how people change. That's, that's right. It's always at the forefront of my mind. That's in preaching. That's in leadership development. That's in strategy. I, all of that stuff uh, is really kind of, I think, at the center of a lot of what I do. And one of the things that I'm always trying to get better at is to improve in communicating, improve in teaching. So this isn't written uh, for sermons necessarily or Mm -hmm. for even religious institutions and gatherings. But I have heard a lot, as I'm sure you have over the years, um, that people have different learning styles. Have you – was that any part of your undergrad, like learning how to teach two different undergrad or Uh -uh. different – it wasn't. No, now I didn't do the traditional like MDiv where there might have been more preaching classes. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, I had much more. I, I got a um, a master's in biblical studies at Wheaton, and uh, so. Okay. Uh, but no, I didn't have any training in like hey, a lot of the stuff that we talk about and learning styles. I feel like that's been a big try to catch up for me over the years. Gotcha. Well, let me just read a little bit here. 
And uh, it's a little bit, nah, it's not that long, but there's just some information here that I thought was really interesting. Uh, it says professors are susceptible to neuromyths, false beliefs about learning that arise from misunderstandings about the brain, which, you know, as a quick aside, we don't know hardly anything about the brain. We do not. Which I think is the fascinating. Brain is just, it's just amazing right. just to think about it. So are the instructional designers and professional developers who support their teaching. That's the main finding of International Report Neuromyths and Evidence-Based Practices in Higher Education, which was released last month by the Online Learning Consortium, which I just want to say consortium more often in my life. It says, among the most widely believed neuromyths is that students learn best when they're taught according to their preferred learning style. Mm. Visually, for example, according to the report, which is based on survey responses from about a thousand instructors and support professionals, just over a quarter of professors correctly identified uh, that the idea as uh, that the idea was false, while 46% of instructional designers and 35% of professional development administrators did. There is no evidence, the report says, to support the idea that people learn best when taught in their preferred learning style. In fact, it says, research suggests that, quote, teaching to learning styles may actually hinder learning or affect a student's self-perception because it may lead students to seek only information presented in a particular way. I'm going to stop there because I think that statement alone Mm -hmm. Is super fascinating. What do you do with that as a teacher yourself? Yeah, that's a hard one because, like you said, we've often been taught, like, know your students' learning style, know your parishioners' learning style, and kind of make sure that you're kind of teaching in a way that goes across the boards there. Um, This is kind of zigging when it zags, right? Like, this is saying, nope, don't do that. In fact, you might be hurting them in some way by thinking, hey, here's my learning style. It's hard for me to – obviously, these people are a ton smarter than me. It's just uh, – without re- going and reading more about why they believe this, it's hard for me to believe that, right? Like, learning styles are learning styles. And so uh, this is this is new news to me. So what do you do with it? Because like you said, you've given a lot more thought probably than I have about learning styles and how to best make, uh, make a difference in people when you're teaching. Well, historically, one of the things that I've done whenever writing sermons is I actually try to run – Every sermon I give through a filter of all the learning styles. So, okay. like, and what would some of those learning styles be? Yeah, so you have auditory learners, right? Yeah. So people that, um, at least now given the neuromyth, maybe I have no idea, but would say <laughs> I learn best yeah. through listening, right? Yeah. So trying to incorporate different auditory elements, whether that's um, a sound clip. Obviously, in mm. preaching, there's um, sound being given when you talk. Yep. But part of the way that I think through that is if there's too much visual noise – arguably what I've heard is that can be overly distracting to an auditory learner. So really thinking through even the Mm -hmm. lack of visual stimuli so that what I'm speaking, what I'm saying is actually resonating. Then you have visual learners. So like not just text on a screen, but is there a picture or an icon or something graphically that can really kind of grab you? There are kinesthetic learners, tactile learners. So I always try to think through what's something I can put in your hand or something that I can have you actually like touch or feel or experience or even, you know, a lot of our Orthodox brothers and sisters do this way better. Smell. Yeah. A lot of those things are are very intentional ways of helping solidify learning and helping make different connections in the brain. So like running through a sermon saying, man, there's a ton of auditory content. You've not engaged them visually or tactilely at all. Yeah. What would be an example of how you have uh, especially in a bigger setting like you're in yeah uh 
I'm, I'm interested in the tactile one. Yeah. What have, you, what have you done in the past? What would be an example We've of something We've done a, done a couple. We uh, did a Good Friday service where when everyone came in, they were handed a nail. Mm. And uh, throughout the message, I had them actually like place the sharp end of the nail on their palm. Like feel, I want you to feel mm. um, the intensity of a nail on your, on your palm. We've done one where we handed everybody rocks. Um, we were talking about... Um, you know, woman caught in adultery yep, and yep, yep. had them like drop rocks, you know, in, into a bucket. Um, we've even done it with communion where, you know, when they get the, the bread in the cup, uh, we'll have someone walk them through sort of a, a meditative prayer. Feel the bread in your hand, feel, mm. feel the cup rather than just, all right, eat and drink. So like yep. really, a lot of times it's just expanding on elements that are already kind of a central part of your service and just thinking through it more holistically yep. with some level of understanding about how people learn and how people, and again, you know, some hit and some miss. Yep. It's, oh, not, always, it's sure. not always for a sure. slam dunk, but I think what I find really interesting about this article, it goes on to say other examples of pervasive neuromyths include that people can be left brain or right brained and that we use only 10% of our brain. The report includes research backed explanations about why each of those misunderstandings is incorrect. Have you heard people say things like, oh, I'm totally right-brained? 100% or totally, all that, the time. Or yeah. the 10% thing, you've heard that one yes. too. Isn't yes. that wild yeah. that like we're finding that some of this is perhaps uh, not actually accurate, <laughs> which is humbling because, you know. And what do you do with it? That's what I'm saying. I have no idea. Like, are you? Nobody would say you're wrong to be thinking through learning styles, but is it unnecessary? Like, would, would the takeaway from here be, Ian, you should just teach how you best teach? Or is that, that feels, that doesn't feel right, but I don't know if I'm just reacting to how I've always been told, right? Right, like, right, right. Just because you like to learn this way and, and teach this way, does don't assume everybody does that. And I'm not sure if that's the takeaway here, but they are kind of calling into question this thinking through, uh, which I think, when I hear you say how you systematically think through who's in the room, yeah. I'm challenged by that. I'm like, that's great. Like, I need to mm. do more of that. I just don't know if the article saying you need to be doing more of that. <laughs> and that's that's humbling. Like, I don't know the answer to that. Well, and I think, too, I mean, again, this is written from a very, like, professorial, yep. collegiate perspective. But, you know, it was a big motivation behind even at Poplar Creek when we were meeting in the round, right, was, uh, it was just another engagement method that when, you know, there has been some research to show that when we see a person's face, uh, that increases empathy. That we're only seeing the back, the backs of people's heads. There's something in our brain that says, "Oh, I'm a spectator in this oh, event," interesting. and interesting. and so our bodies behave as such. So we spend a lot of time in sermons saying, "Hey, you're not a spectator. You're you're a part of this family, and you're part of the mission of God." And yet, so often our spaces say quite the opposite. You're sitting they, in a row, right? They look right. like a movie theater. Yeah. I don't go to a movie theater to participate. I go to a movie theater to be entertained. Yep. So we often rail in our sermons about like it's not about being entertained. And then you look yep. around the room, you're like, everything about this space points to entertainment, yep. though. So yep. I think there's a lot to be said about at least even being mindful of what some of those things communicate. Stuff. But that is that's hard to be mindful of, especially when it's like. I don't know. It's the stuff that we've always done. You yes. know what I mean? Yes. That's where I think it just gets really difficult. And I think to always kind of be asking deeper questions about how, how can we be doing this better? It's good. Again, while not obsessing and saying ultimately right. the Holy Spirit isn't like handcuffed by the fact that our PowerPoint isn't killer. You know? <laughs> yeah. Our seats aren't comfortable enough. Yes. I think yes. be mindful of it, but all in my perspective. Well, coming up next, Drew Dick, a friend of the show. Can I say that? I've been on twice. He's been on twice. That a makes you a friend show. of the show. He tweeted something that we found really, really fascinating. So we're going to talk about that a little bit coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. And every once in a while, we scour the depths of the Twitter sphere. And we usually regret that. That's usually usually something that we're proud of. But it's interesting, though, because – and I mentioned this earlier. Like it's – sometimes – it's just awful. Yeah, <laughs> you like. I've even seen other people that I that I follow and respect. They're like, I gotta, I gotta go palate cleanse. I gotta go not be on Twitter. Yep. But there's also a number of people that you and I both follow that I think say really thoughtful things or provocative things. And often, oftentimes, real fast to that, like when you're so bummed by Twitter, uh, then you'll come across somebody like who just writes something so edifying, so encouraging, and you're like, that's why I'm on here. So. Yeah, right. So Drew Dick has been on the show a couple of times, and he's uh, he's a great follow. And he's at Drew Dick D Y C K. And uh, I liked this tweet here. In fact, I even responded you did. to I'm it. I'm staring at your response here. Right there. I think I think he liked that. Uh, he said, "Just a reminder that the true test of your character isn't how nice you are to your equals and superiors. It's how you treat the people below you, the ones who aren't uh, in positions to help you achieve your goals. If you treat them poorly, your niceness is just." A charade. What do you think of that? He, he went on to later uh, comment on his own post. He goes, "Great, now people are being nice to me." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's really he's really clever. Uh, and also, I, I went to go to his profile to find out like what does he do exactly to be like. All he wrote on his profile is high school graduate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a good follow. That makes me laugh. Uh, this is so good, man, and it, it's convicting. I think the beauty of a good tweet is it convicts you, like a good sermon or a good whatever. Uh, because so many times, especially in our utilitarian culture, what we, we treat people as commodities and we treat people in such a way that says, how can they advance my agenda? Uh, that, that people become a means to an end. Uh, and that, I think, is what he's getting at here. He says, uh, it's easy to be nice to your equals or your superiors. Well, why is it easy to be nice to your superiors in particular? Because they can help you out. Right. They could pull you along. We do that. But it's how you treat the people below you who aren't in positions to help you achieve your goals. Yeah. Those people, we all know. And before we get to arrogant, we're probably those people to other people. Uh, but we've all got those people in our lives who, quite frankly, uh, can be a time drain at times, or you can be in conversation. And, and if you really thought about it, you're going, this isn't advancing my agenda very much. Like nothing's happening here. Uh, but, but this is the way of Jesus, right? Jesus did not treat people throughout the gospels. Uh, and he did not teach his followers to treat people as an ends to, uh, means to an end. Like, what is this going to get? Jesus didn't go around going, huh, what is this woman in the adultery going to, how is she going to help me? Yeah. Uh, how is the, are these fishermen going to help me? Jesus instead invested in people and he helped and loved them, right? Uh, we could easily say for Jesus, everybody was below him, but you never see him treat anyone below him. In fact, you see him treating others better than himself and teaching in that way. And so we've got to be really careful as Christ followers going, how do I view people how do I treat people? Because how you treat people, people are catching on to that. They know if if you're kind of pushing them aside and they're not worth your time or whatever else. And so, man, I love this. And and you did comment on this. You wrote it. It reminds me of this. The true measure of a man is how he treats someone who can do him absolutely no good. That was someone, uh, Samuel Johnson. Uh, so a great quote there. But getting at that same concept. When people can't further Ian Simpkins' uh, career 
or uh, whatever you're trying to accomplish or whoever else out there, how do you treat those people? Do they feel disregarded by you? Do you actually disregard them? Because as Drew here says, he says, if you treat them poorly, those types of people poorly, your niceness is a charade. You can see it. You're only being nice to people because of what they can do for you. Yeah, I like what Dan B said. He said, the distinction you make here is at least in one way I distinguish between what we call niceness and what scripture calls kindness. Kindness cannot be feigned. Niceness can. And I think, so I wrote this a couple, when did I write this? This was back in January. I said, if you want to really know a leader's heart, watch how they treat people, not just the people that Mm. can benefit them or their team, everyone, the barista, the waitress, the intern, the custodian, the panhandler. These are the things worth paying attention to. And then I included that Samuel Johnson quote. There's another Samuel Johnson quote that I've always loved. He said, kindness is in our power even when fondness is not. That's more of like a, hey, I don't like that person. Like, that's okay. You're still capable of being kind to them. But one of the things that I found unfortunately a lot in churches is quite the opposite there's a a ton of niceness and kindness to the people that can benefit them that can prop up their career that can expand their social circle like it makes me sad how many times i've seen christian leaders yes. like only buddy up at the head table always insist to be next to the most powerful person in the room they're like always trying to it's you know in some ways we call it the hustle like man that person makes connections you're like that person treats other people like garbage though mm. they stand on a stage and they'll talk about the loving kindness of god but when they're behind closed doors they treat people like trash and i don't think that you can i don't think you can treat people like trash and worship God like treasure. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that that works that way. And unfortunately, it quote unquote does work in a lot of circles. And I, you know, I think like you said, this is a temptation for all of us because we all want to do better in life and in ministry and our career. Like I, I get the, the temptation, but it is so unfortunate that, because in case someone has talent, we excuse terrible behavior mm-hmm. and this sort of like, I'm going to turn it on if this person or that group can further the thing that I'm interested in doing, even if the thing they're interested in doing on the surface looks really righteous, really yep. holy. This I like the way that Dan writes this because he's like, man, anyone can anyone can be nice to someone that could benefit you. Yeah, that's it's actually sort of like what Jesus says, like, man, give, given given bread to your own kid. Even evil people do that. Yeah. No one's going to give their kid a stone when he asks for bread. Like, don't pat yourself on the back for being nice or kind to the people that are, you know, in your circle or that can benefit your career. It's like the real test is, man, how do you how do you treat your enemy or how do you treat the person that you feel is beneath you? And the, the added subtext there is, no one's beneath you. Mm. That's what I think is really at the heart of so much of what Jesus says is. Not just be nice to the people beneath you, because the real the real revelation is no one's beneath you. Yeah, and I think that is harder for people to really understand when we so glorify climbing the ladder and up into the right trajectory, and when that becomes our idol, when that becomes our goal, well, then it makes perfect sense that I would only treat well the people that can further that. You know what I mean? I remember you sharing a story that that has stuck with me about. Uh, when you went from being the pastor of a smaller church, medium-sized church, to a much bigger, well-known church, yeah. and literally the same people in the same context were treating you differently. Yeah. And that it, I remember hearing that going, well, that makes sense and is really sad. It, it was and, really sad. And we've, been, we've all been in those, uh, in those settings. And you make a great point, right? Jesus talks about uh, 
Jesus talks about loving the least of these and treating others better than yourself. And so if he, he taught that and lived that out, then we as his followers are called uh, to do likewise. And there's also some arrogance in this, right? Like we never in these, I should say I, no, there probably are people who struggle with self-esteem much more than I do. There are I rarely read quotes like this and go, man, I really wish the people above me would treat me like this. Hmm. I'm always thinking, yeah, I'm above most people. Like, you know what? Interesting. We rarely put ourselves. I rarely put myself in this scenario as the one like, yes, will those above me please. Will you see me, please? Will you see me? Yeah. And some of you out there might be going, yeah, you just think too highly of yourself. Hmm. I I always say guilty as charged. Uh, but I do know in churches, there are times, right? Sunday morning, let's pretend you finish, you go out, you probably have people in your mind. Like these are the people I want to talk to today. I mm-hmm. want to connect with these people. And then that, that nice older lady or that nice uh, guy who they're like, Hey, can I talk to you for a second? And you're like, Oh, like I, I, I need mm-hmm. to, uh, I, and sometimes I have to remind myself, wait, this is what I'm doing. Like, this is pastoral. Yeah. This is right. what I'm doing. And, uh, and that's where, where this kind of rubber meets the road here. Like, don't let your niceness be a charade. And that, as Drew Dick, I think, does a great job telling us, that is best shown by how you treat people who can't advance your agenda. And I think, unfortunately, some of the takeaway that someone might be hearing right now is, all right, well, then I'm going to stop pretending to be nice and just be the jerk that I actually am. <laughs> Good point. Well, I think you need to surrender your heart yeah. to be formed into the likeness of Jesus. Because here's the real kicker, and you mentioned it, you know, when we say things like, you know, it's about how we treat the least of these what does Jesus say about who culture deems the least? He says mm. they're actually closest to the kingdom. Mm. So when we create these categories of like, hey, also be nice to the lowlies, what else does he say? Yeah. Those people, children, people in poverty, you know, in this culture, women, mm. people born with any sort of ailment. We, we, he's saying to this to his disciples, even the people that have been living life with him, man, you, you put them lower on the rung. What if I told you they're actually closer to the kingdom than any of you? Mm. And I think that to me is always a really helpful, convicting That's reminder really when how we treat people. That's good. Thank you to Drew Dick for posting this. this yeah, no good. kidding. Come back on the show. All right. Uh, so coming up next, here's the headline. It's okay to be happy with a quiet life. We're going to talk about that coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us. Well, okay, that's not fair. Not actually us. <laughs> the digital representations of our voice, the content that yeah. we are creating. It's not even a representation of our voice. It's our actual voices. No, it's not our actual voices. It's a digital representation. Oh, that is deep. <laughs> now, I, you're right, but that just blew my mind. It's not our actual voice. I might be out for this whole segment. It's trying not to get like my mind around if that. you go to this URL, we will drive right to your house to give you our actual voice like mind blown on that one i you are 100 percent right and now that you said that i'm like whoa i didn't know i could blow your mind so easily uh yes if simple you, minds if, <laughs> yes. if you'd like to find our digital representations you can go to facebook at the common good radio show 1160hope.com uh wherever it is you get your podcast plus we're on twitter at common good talk the numbers are climbing there so get in on the twitter real quick before we run out of Abilities to let you space still available. Follow us. <laughs> <laughs> Tickets on sale now. And uh, all right, so here's the topic that you and I have come back to in some way, shape, or form a number of times. Which yeah, I think I wonder if we come back to topics often because we need to hear them. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. Oh, were you really? It's true. Yeah, I, start, I, I we're think like a married couple uh, starting to share a mind. <laughs> I do not want to affirm that statement at all, even if you might be right. Uh, okay, so here's here's the title of the article. It's okay. To be happy with a quiet life. 
mm-hmm. which it's written in a lovely font, and there's a lovely photo. Right well, I the love top. the photo is of two old people on a bench, and I love it because it looks really peaceful, but it also kind of, again, puts in the stereotype, the quiet life when you're 80 years old oh. and no longer working. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I like this uh, Charlotte Erickson quote that it begins yep. with, sometimes you need to sit lonely on the floor in a quiet room in order to hear your own voice and not let it drown in the, no- in the noise of others. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that is actually That's terrifying for a lot of people. The idea even just of silence as a discipline, even if you're living a very rushed, busy life, yeah. just simply being still, not to mention, unfortunately, I think in a lot of Western evangelicalism, and you mentioned this you know, months ago, that like even words like meditation yep. all, had spooked you for a long time. 100%. And you, somebody, were taught, somebody taught you that. I remember meditation was seen as almost... Uh, it was spoken of as almost like new agey demonic. Right. It was kind of like given run that. from that. Right. To this day, when I hear about yoga and meditation, I, I have to tell myself, no, no, they're fine. Like, because the <laughs> it's still like they're that baggage still comes up. I totally sure. get that. Well, why, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, about this article? <laughs> yeah, it's you know, again, I think you and I probably feel the need to. Uh, to live this more. And that's why we keep going back to it. But it says, uh, we live in a world where busyness is king. We're so busy glorifying how busy we are, we miss out on experiencing the moments that matter. And while we're so busy making a living, we forget to make life, which is quite tragic. Here's the sobering truth. And man, this is, here's the money statement. Busyness crushes our soul. And we should focus more on reducing the number of things on our calendar than adding to it. The key to removing busyness is simple. Live intentionally and identify areas in our life we can replace with quiet time. After all, the white space is where the magic happens and who isn't down for a little magic. And so this article is going to talk about joy uh, being robbed in our lives as we compare ourselves with others. So we always think we need to be doers. We're doing and we're doing and we're doing. And it's going to get at the end to talk a little bit about minimalism, that that's the answer, the removal of things in our lives uh, rather than um, adding more and more and more. And I think that this are, that this author is correct. Uh, busyness, the, removing busyness is simple. It's just difficult. Yeah, right. This is right. one of those things. Uh, and I like it. Have intentionality and identify areas in your life where you can replace with quiet time again. I can think of many areas, just one of these easier said than done. And I really think we're only going to get to this point when we actually believe that busyness crushes our soul. Uh, And I think that's even the thought of like getting to a place where we believe it is not something I think. I don't think you can just wake up like, you know what? I've committed my whole life prior to now to being busy. I don't believe it anymore. That's good. You know what I mean? Like, how do you how do you unravel all the things in culture and religion and upbringing and society that point towards the glorification of like, I, I actually love this quote, the Sir Francis Bacon quote that's included. Uh, envy is ever joined with a comparing of a man's self and where there is no comparison, no envy. I wonder if that's a big part of it, like part of and maybe we wouldn't actually articulate it that way because we're just sort of like we're, we're running at a clip. That we're not even paying attention. Yeah. But if like beneath all of that is like, oh, because I saw someone else make more money or drive a nicer car or yep. live in a bigger house or have a bigger audience or whatever that is, or bigger church maybe for our yep. environment. Yep. Like, I wonder if some of that isn't like the mechanism that's kind of driving a lot of this insatiable busyness. I think it is. Later on, she quotes Anne Lamott, who says, almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes, including you. Yeah, right? What good. do you do at home when nothing – you did it today. You, t- you opened right. your computer. Yeah. Something wasn't working and you, you went – 
well, I'm going to close my computer. Like, Every IT director listening is like, amen. And, yep, turn it <laughs> off. They're not, and she says, Anne Lamont says, including you, it's the same principle. And the author goes on to say, I'm convicted of this all the time. And here's another one uh, that I think gets at what is at the core of this. Many of us, including me, the author writes, suffer from FOMO, the fear of missing out. We're simply, if we roll our kids in that sport, we'll miss out in something. We think there is happiness to be had, joy to be experienced, and moments to be made. Yes, there might be some truth to this, but who's to say the moments of solitude or quiet time won't measure up or even exceed these altogether? And she goes to say, I love what Katrina Kennison shares in her essay, Why You Must Have Time Alone. She says, in solitude, we see more clearly. Alone, in moments of prayer or meditation or simply in stillness, we breathe more deeply, see more fully, hear more keenly, we notice more, and in the process, we return to what is sacred. That is really good. I remember when I was learning to play the drums, I think I may have told the story here. I like it. Just kind of going crazy on a drum set because I didn't know how to... I didn't know what I was doing. Yep. And a guy from our church taught me the, the importance of rest. And rest is how you determine the difference between music and mere noise. And mm-hmm. we're thinking like, that probably applies to life too. When <laughs> we're just on, when you're playing any instrument or doing any activity just constantly all the time. Now, that's not to say there isn't like seasons to hustle, right? Absolutely. But I think maybe a, a more helpful rhythm is like sprints followed by rest rather than just continual jogging. Yes. I think a lot of us are just at a constant we're not really maybe even going after anything all that hard, but we're just constantly moving or doing or going. And that doesn't even have to be just accomplishments. I think when talking about margin, it's like, do you have evenings where just nothing is planned or yep. space where while you drive, the radio's off? You're just yeah. still, you're just qu- not I think between that's, four and six, though. But <laughs> not between four and six, obviously, obviously. No, you're totally right. I eat. Uh, so McCullum Park in Downers Grove, when it's nice out, I like to go for walks there in the middle of the day. Like uh, I'll go walk this loop they have, and I use it to pray. Kind of what she's talking about here, just kind of unclog my, my my mind and pray and kind of focus and yeah. just enjoy nature, which sounds wonderful, and it is. I can't tell you how many times I've been on that walk and instinctively grabbed my phone. Oh, for sure. And then you're looking at your phone going, I don't even remember – Grabbing, like, why, why I am I looking at this it? thing? Right, and what on my phone could be better than right now? Yeah. Walking in God's creation, praying. I'm literally praying, right. and all of a sudden there's a buzz, and you grab your phone, or there uh, wasn't even a buzz, and you're <laughs> a like, phantom buzz. The, right, I wonder if that person emailed me, and you're like, what am I doing? Like, yeah. just this constant, and we do that all the time with our phones. We do it at home with our televisions, and we do it with just this insatiable need to be busy, to yeah. just be busy and uh and there is there's a lot wrapped up in that there's identity yeah uh there's uh you you've often said and i love the line right we're human beings we're not human doers yeah. did i get that right Do- doings but yeah human yeah. do oh, it does work better <laughs> shoot it does work better that's right no one's listening to this we're human <laughs> beers not human doers <laughs> nailed it yeah <laughs> well done uh, but it's a great concept it's just one that's really hard to live out and that's why i think uh again we go back to sabbath and what is you know what role does Sabbath play? Right. Uh, all of this is so important. I think we pound it home because it's it makes so much sense, yet it is so hard to do. Yeah, I, I like what uh, Annie Dillard says. How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. Mm. Richard Rohr said something similar. He says something like, how you do anything is how you do everything. Wow. I think about like the stress or the anxiety or the, you know, I, I remember my grandma telling me when I was like mm, 12, She's like, uh, you try to fit 10 pounds of stuff into a five-pound bag 
all the time. I don't think she said stuff, but I'm, you know. <laughs> but like even at twelve, I was like, "Is it already that obvious?" Like yeah. I, yeah, you overdo it, and you try and, and cram too many things into too short a day. And it's amazing how right she was that long ago. And I think it's right. How you do anything is how you do everything. You know, yeah. how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And so, how do we actually pursue? more quiet rhythms it doesn't you know we often i think the response is we're going on a two-week cruise yeah which is fine yeah. go on your cruises but we often kind of parachute back into yeah. an already you can't wait rushed busy two life. years to get to the cruise right another, right exactly how uh, do you actually yeah. design a more kind of simple minimal life and i think it starts with with the brain i think if we don't actually believe that it's valuable if we don't actually believe that it's the way that god designed us to actually live mm-hmm. then we're never going to pursue it right 100 well is it that time? It is. It is time. <laughs> it is time. Everyone is frightened as we are. It's uh, time to land the plane, which means some interweb insanity. That's coming up next right here in the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Common Good, the segment that I can't believe we're still allowed to do. Interweb insanity, where stories are chosen for us. We have not seen them. Sound effects we have not heard. Brian Fromm and I are going to read them sight unseen. I've never said the phrase sight unseen more times. So many times. Never thought I ever would. This segment still gets me a little nervous. I'm not not going to lie. So I'm going to make you go first. I'm ready. Dallas, Texas. Dallas Station. Sorry we delayed tornado warning for football. (laughs) That's so Texas. A Dallas TV station has apologized for taking six minutes to decide that a tornado warning was worth interrupting coverage of the Cowboys game. NBC affiliate KXAS issued a statement admitting that although its meteorologists were tracking thunderstorms Sunday night, they delayed breaking into programming when a tornado warning was issued for Dallas County. USA Today reports, when it comes to dealing with severe weather, we know that seconds matter, the station manager said. We should have broken into football programming sooner. We apologize and want you to know that we're doing everything in our power to make sure this does not happen again. We look forward to regaining the trust of anyone we have disappointed, uh, the station said. Other stations had gone wall to wall with weather coverage Sunday night, while KXAS stuck with the Cowboys game against the Eagles, which the Cowboys won. 37 to 10. It's a twist. It's a twist. Sure. Yeah. Sounds about right. We'll go with it. All right. Uh, Belgium. Not sure we've done a Belgium one yet. Restaurant serves drinking water recycled from its toilets. Yes, Belgium. (laughs) Gross. To highlight a new type of water purification system, a restaurant in, what is that? Curene. Curene, Belgium, has started serving its customers free drinking water recycled from its sinks and toilets. The water served... At the, gosh darn it, Gustav. <laughs> Thank you for assisting. <laughs> Restaurant in Curin. <laughs> These days is the same as any potable water. It has no smell, no taste, no color, so it's impossible to tell its source is actually the restaurant's toilets. By using a complex five-step purification system, Gustav <laughs> is able to I turn, lost my place. <laughs> is able to turn its sewage into a water so pure that it has to be enriched. Uh, with minerals before being served to clients. The Belgian restaurant is not connected to the city's sewer system, so it really needed a closed-circuit solution to solve its sewage problem. Thanks to this allegedly unique water recycling system, the toilet and sink water is initially cleaned with plant fertilizer, and then part of it is mixed with collected rainwater and used for flushing toilets, while the rest is passed through a series of purification processes that make it indistinguishable from tap water. Check, please. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I don't 
Do you think they advertise it that way? I like that's know. like a like an attraction. My first question is, what's in the waffles? Mm-hmm. The Belgian waffles. Of course, you were going to ask that. Question. Germany, highly aggressive cow leads police on a chase in Germany. Huh. Police in Germany said a highly aggressive escaped cow in Bavaria destroyed a greenhouse, wrecked a scooter, damaged a police car, and knocked its owner to the ground before being recaptured. Lower Franconia police said the cow, which weighed over 1,300 pounds, escaped from a farm Saturday night, and multiple police cars and a helicopter were dispatched to chase down the highly aggressive and outraged bovine. Police said the cow managed to destroy an entire greenhouse and wrecked a scooter and a police car during the pursuit. The cow's owner attempted to capture the animal personally, but was knocked to the ground and sustained minor injuries. The pursuers were eventually able to use emergency vehicles to box the cow in, and a veterinarian used a blowgun to shoot the animal with a tranquilizer. The cow was then safely returned to its farm. Don't kid yourself, Jimmy. If a cow ever got the chance, he'd eat you and everyone you care about. (laughs) That's a that's a mad cow right there. Yes. Oh, nice. I can't believe the article didn't do that. I know. That's such low-hanging fruit. I Tennessee, know. bears open doors of unlocked SUVs, steal pack of gum. Aw. A family vacationing in Tennessee said their vehicle had only been left unlocked for a brief time when a family of bears opened the doors and made off with a pack of gum. Krista Colson of Franklin, Kentucky, was visiting Gatlinburg with her family when her mother left the doors of their SUV unlocked because they were planning to leave the cabin very shortly. That's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Colson's sister, Kayla Davis, said her sisters and mother went outside just a few months. That says months later. I'm assuming Going minutes, minutes yep, later. Yep. And found a mother bear and three cubs had opened the doors and climbed into the vehicle. <laughs> Colson recorded as her family members shouted at the bears to scare them away. Hey, boo-boo, let's see what we got in this picnic basket. I could have guessed that one. I knew I was going to. Hey, boo-boo, here we go. (laughs) Uh, Last one's out of California. California woman returns library books 74 years overdue. (laughs) A California woman who was cleaning out her study found a library book her mother had checked out 74 years earlier. No way. And she returned it. Berkeley library workers said they were surprised Friday when Jean Burham brought in a copy of Sir Walter Scott Scott's Lady of the Lake that her mother had checked out in 1945. My mother did buy some books, but mostly she came to the Berkeley Public Library. We were always surrounded by books, Durham told Berkeley side. Library officials said there was no fine as the facility did away with late fees in 2018. This case has been turned over to our library investigations officer, Mr. Bookman. Bookman? The library investigator's name is actually Bookman? <laughs> it's true. That's amazing. <laughs> That's like an ice cream man named Cone. See, I think the most surprising part of that whole story is that they did away with late fees. I know. Did you? I mean, again, the the uh, grand total would still be like a dollar thirty, right? The That's... Downers Grove Library has not done away with late fees. Really? But you can run them up to. You don't have to pay them to reach ten dollars. <laughs> so I'm at six dollars and sixty cents right now. So they're not real until they reach ten dollars. Ten dollars. You can always hit later. Pay later as long as it's under ten dollars. <laughs> I feel like you're kind of throwing the Downers Grove Library under the bus right now. No, it's great. I love the Downers Grove <laughs> Library, and that's why I keep hitting pay later. Ah, I do like that feature. I'm not going to lie. Well, it's been a fun day here at the Common Good. Hope you'll join us tomorrow and every day from 4 to 6 p.m. right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. <laughs>